this week, uh, I heard um, about an incident that just so powerfully encouraged me. We've been talking about biblical community and what it means to be better together. And last two, three Sundays, we've been talking about radical hospitality and what does it mean for the church, the body of Christ, to live both growing deeper in our love for each other, brothers and sisters, Philadelphia, and also Philozenia, or love for strangers or others. Last Sunday, something happened. Many of you know that uh, the last two and a half months for me personally have been really challenging. Uh, one of my closest friends, Lisa and Bill Orris, lost their oldest son to a tragic motorcycle accident. He was 26. And it's been for me a really tough, um, emotionally, mentally draining time. Caring for them, um, leading through the funeral service, and even post, hung out with Lisa a ton this past weekend. And for those of you that have been praying for me, of course, and our family, it's been enormous for us as well. Um, At the funeral, I reconnected with a young lady named Sierra. She was Billy's boyfriend for two years. And they were really close and really tight. Um, she's been coming to our church. Almost nobody knew that. I knew. She and I have been talking and connecting. And she's been coming to our church, sitting by herself. Doesn't really know anybody. Well, last Sunday during the greeting time, we've been talking about passing the peace. An unnamed individual. I talked to this unnamed individual, and the person didn't want to be identified. She's kind of like that. An unnamed individual during greeting time turned to her and said, Hey, how are you doing? And Sierra just broke down. Just broke down. And they got a chance to connect a little bit during the worship service. Well, that very day, this unnamed woman, who's, by the way, a vital part of our church family, invited Sierra over for dinner to her house, just on the spot. Sierra went over. An invitation from a stranger, as far as she was concerned. Had a great dinner. And as Sierra's going home, she furiously texted Lisa. And so Lisa texts me and says, You guys have an amazing church. You know that, right, Peter? This is what happened. Just inform me about it. And so I got a chance to connect with Lisa and Sierra. And I was just reminded again, we have no idea who's sitting around us, do we? That's one of the challenges for me. And our church is not big. Some of you think this is, our church isn't big. It's not a big church. And we sit around, and we sit on Sunday, and we have no idea who's around us, who's sitting in front of us, who's sitting behind. We have no idea of their story. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, just maybe, within this hour and a half, sometimes two hours if I go long, just within this time that we have together, if all of us, if all of us, especially those of us for whom this is home, new community is home, and we are that person who somebody welcomed us when we first showed up. We were strangers and somebody welcomed us. If we would just just be more intentional, take time to get out of ourselves, even if we had a rough week, and during those moments, perhaps spirit-led, we would just take the moment to go, what's your name? How are you doing? How did you get here? How can I pray for you? Maybe, maybe those moments, those moments, maybe those moments, as Michael mentioned and as we've been preaching about, could turn into sacramental, truly spirit-touched moments. So I'll just remind it, Every single Sunday you show up, please, please, 
please, open your eyes. Please look around. And especially for those of us who are like, I've got enough friends. I have enough relationships. I don't need any more. I've got my own issues. If we would just take the time and the opportunity just to look around, ask, approach somebody, talk to them. We've been talking about what it means to be the church. And we've been in Hebrews, and so I thought I'd stay in Hebrews, at least for this week and possibly next. By the way, I didn't intend this sermon series on biblical community to go this long. I was going to end it after four weeks until I realized we are so stinking Western, individualistic, privatized, solo Christian, I can go on and on, that, that I could preach on this for a year, and I think it would barely make a dent. I think, I think it would barely make a dent because, because many of you are still sitting here. You're either not convinced or you kind of agree, but you're doing nothing about it. Book of Hebrews, if you've read through it, has a ton of stuff. But as we get towards the end in chapter 12, chapter 13, it actually begins talking about community. Book of Hebrews was written to Christians who are being persecuted, who are just being beaten down by a culture, by a culture that's hostile to them, hostile to their faith. And the author of Hebrews flat out gets to chapter 12, 13 and says, listen to me, you can't do life without community. You won't be able to survive without community. That's his point. That's his point. I told you guys 80% of the New Testament is written in the plural. You can't make sense of the New Testament as a solo Christian. 80% of it. And many, many of the verbs in the book of Hebrews is written to groups. Verbs are in plural. Commands are in plural. Now, what's interesting is when we come to chapter 12, he starts talking about the presence of God, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Any of you grew up in church that were Shekinah, glory of God, the, 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 the very holy presence of God. He starts talking about that. And, and listen to what he says. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, open your Bibles here because we're going we're gonna to park in Hebrews. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. Verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels and joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And come to Hebrews chapter 12, the author has given us a bit of history. And the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, and how we can experience and encounter it. And he begins with Mount Sinai. Jesus, you remember next to this Mount Sinai when the glory of God descended upon the mountain. That God's presence was so holy that he commands that if, a, if, if an animal touches it, it must be stoned to death. Even Moses trembles with fear, recognizing the very holy presence presence of God, and they can't just willy-nilly. By the way, I, I, I read this, and I think about our present-day culture. And I'm just struck sometimes when I read the Old Testament about how traumatic it was, how terrifying it was, how fatal it was if you approached God's presence without recognizing His holiness. And the presence of God descends from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle. Do you remember? Moses is a new mediator, and God says, now here's how you approach my presence in the tabernacle. God gives the book of Leviticus. Do you remember the book of Leviticus? Anybody? 
So it's interesting is I get people who say, I want to read through the book, Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I go, that's great. That's awesome. And most people love Genesis because it's got lots of sex and lots of violence. It's interesting. <laughs> and then you get to Leviticus and all of your good intentions go out the window. Most people just give up in Leviticus. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You just, why? Because it's details. It's details. It's ritual. It's ritual. What to eat, what to wear, how to clean yourself, the presence of God. But all of that, God says, here's how you approach a holy God, the Shekinah glory of God. You got all of these things that you must do in order to approach me. Rituals, details. Then, Hebrews 12, jump way ahead. The author says, no, we have a new mediator, Jesus. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And through what Jesus has done, through his death and resurrection, he has now opened the door. He has now opened the door. He has now opened a door where this Shekinah holy presence of God could come flooding into our lives today. Does anybody else find that amazing? This presence of God come flooding into our lives with Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Then when we come to Hebrews 12, listen, the author of Hebrews then says, so today then, if Jesus has done this, how do believers today encounter and experience the very presence of God? The Shekinah glory of God that was traumatic, terrifying, deadly. The answer is totally missed. It's totally missed. Do you know why? Chapter divisions. What are you talking about, Peter? Chapter divisions in the Bible. Do you know that when the authors of the Bible wrote the Bible, author of Hebrews, Peter, Paul, they didn't have these numbers that you see in your Bibles. We, later on, many years later, put them in for reference. But when the initial authors of the Bible wrote the Bible, there were no chapter divisions, which means, listen very carefully. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, you guys know I teach you on Sunday morning, so listen. He says, here's how Jesus has opened the way for the glory of God to come flooding into our lives. How do we experience that today? Chapter 13, verse 1, where he says what? Love one another and entertain strangers. See a yacht that just... The Shekinah glory of God that came flooding into the people in the Old Testament. Jesus opened the door. How do you experience it today? Love one another. Entertaining strangers. Simply put, in community. See, already it's kind of like, wah, 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 wah. Glory of God, presence of God. No, that's me alone. In the room, Bible, but the author of Hebrews says the way that we today now experience the very presence of Shekinah glory of God come flooding into our lives is in a community of people who have been radically saved by this grace and are deeply loving each other and loving others in community. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. In the new covenant, yes, the glory presence of God comes into our lives and the Holy Spirit resides in us. But that's not the end of it. The Bible says that the way that the Shekinah glory of God that is transformative, that is redemptive, that is healing, comes flooding into our lives today in the new covenant is when God's people come together in interwoven, interdependent relationships based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. Are you hearing me? And for those of you that are going, don't take some isolated passages out of the Bible. Isolated passages? This is everywhere in the New Testament. Can I show you? 1 Peter chapter 2 is another place. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Being built into a spiritual house. Literally, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. 
Let me tell you something. There is one place in the entire New Testament when it says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's talking about you individual singular. One place. Every other place, it's what? It's you plural. It's saying, as you are being built up in interwoven, interdependent, intimate relationships to the degree that you are being built up and built together in community. It is in that that the Spirit of God dwells. Which, by the way, on a side note, is the reason why the New Testament talks so much about maintaining the bond of peace and unity. Which is the reason why new community cannot be a place where we allow things like gossip, slander to exist. Where we allow things like resentment, lack of forgiveness to continue to fester. This is a place where we need to learn how to forgive, reconcile, and go deep. Can I get an amen? This is not just me solo. This is about whether the Spirit of God dwells here. Now, I mean, just show you the intensity of this, okay? Because again, again, as some people preaching, like half of you are like, whoa, yeah. And the other half are like, dude, I'm still not connected, man. The Holy Spirit, he lives inside of me. This whole thing you're talking about. I, again, I could preach on this every week for a year, and it would barely make a dent. Let me show you how the intensity of this. Remember that Peter is writing at a time. He's writing at a time. Hi, Pastor Angela. Good to see you. He is writing at a time in which, listen, he's writing at a time in which Christianity and what it said was absolutely unheard of. Why? Because Christianity comes along, and it says, in a culture, you don't need a temple. You don't need priests. You don't need sacrifices encounter the divine. Every other religion, every other culture, every other philosophy said there's a gap between us and the divine. In order to approach him, you need, I need a temple. We need a a priest on behalf of us. We need sacrifices. And Peter and Christianity comes along and says, you don't need a temple. You don't need a priest. You don't need sacrifices. No, no, no. Jesus Christ has opened the door for us. Every other religion says, you want to encounter the divine? Pick up a trowel. You all know what a trowel is? Okay. You pick up a trowel. And you lay brick upon brick. Build a temple. How else are you going to encounter Zeus or Apollo? Brick upon brick. So Peter comes along and says, no, no, no. Peter comes along and says, you actually, you actually do need a temple where the Spirit of God dwells. But it's not brick upon brick. It's You, living stone, built upon you, living stone, built upon you, living stone. You don't need a temple? No, actually, you do. But this temple, it's living stone on top of living stone on top of living stone on top of living stone as you come to him and are being built into a spiritual house a temple of the Holy Spirit Can I ask you something? Say yes. Can you square this image with someone who just attends on Sundays? Can you square this image and the intensity of this image with someone who just uh, comes and leaves after worship? You, like living stones, are being built together. 
it is in this. See, um, I couldn't help myself. For some of you, this is not a picture of your spiritual life. This is a... (laughs) I don't know where I can put you. (laughs) Where should I put you? Um, You know who you are. Oh, maybe I'll put you right here at the communion table. I hope this is not, I hope this isn't like, like some of you that are like, oh my gosh, the sacred. I just buy that. Because this is, this is the epitome of someone who goes, me and Jesus, that's all we need. It's me and Jesus. Me and Jesus all by myself. That's all I need. I don't need anybody else. I just need him. Again, if somebody's like offended, like, that's holy. That's just, well, sorry. <laughs> Can we be serious for a second? Do you see the intensity of that? The question that this is asking, the normal Christian life, this is not extraordinary. The normal Christian life is someone who is so built into the lives of others in this room that if you were to stop showing up, the whole thing would collapse. The normal Christian life, not the extraordinary. I know this is so foreign in American solo individualistic. I'm going to sit in my own bedroom, turn on the computer, and watch some dude preaching and shouting at the top of his lungs and walk away going, I did church today. But can you square that with this image? This is literally saying, are you fitted in? Are you built in so that if you were to shake, their lives would shake? If you were to stop showing up, the whole thing would collapse. And here's the thing. I, I, if you are somebody who says, dude, I'm not ready for that here, man, because I got to kind of check you out. I'll, that's fine. That's fine. But, and I thank God I have you today. When you walk out of here today, whichever church community that you decide to be a part of, make sure that that is your Christian life. Are you so built in that if you were to stop showing up, the whole thing would collapse? I, I, I have to, I have to, I have to say, say, say this. Um, once you put the stone into the temple, into a wall, it's got to stay there. It's got to stay there. You can't just leave. You can't just leave when things get hard. You got to stay there. And let me say two things real quick before I leave. That means, number one, we live in a city, not just called a city, where somebody goes, dude, I'm only here for two years. Dude, I'm only here for three years. I'm only here for a year. I'm only, I'm trying to speak, why? Well, jobs, career. I've said this throughout the whole sermon series. Please recognize you live in a culture where relationships and deep relationships rank very bottom of your priority. And you need to ask yourself the question, why am I so quick to go, I'm only in the city of Chicago for two years, and then I'm gone? Why? Who says? And I always say, if you were standing, intending to be here for two years, stay what? Four. If you were going to be here for four years, stay eight. I have somebody that came to me uh, three weeks ago and said, I came here intending to stay one year, and here I am 13 years later. But her testimony, this community has been life to me. Let me just mention ramifications of this, and then we're done. First, you're violating your design by being alone. You're violating your design. Uh, to buy this, I went to Home Depot. I don't go to Home Depot. Can you tell your pastor's not a handy guy? <laughs> my, my, that's, actually, it wasn't that funny. I, my wife always jokes and says, you have softer hands than I do, which is true. I do have softer hands than my wife, but we won't go, won't go why that's the case. But anyway, anyway, what was I going? Yes, I was at Home Depot. I was at Home Depot, and I was thinking, I was thinking, uh, the people that made this brick, do you think when they made this brick, somebody thought, you know, somebody's going to walk into Home Depot and just buy one brick? Because there's tons of uses for one brick. Be a paperweight. <laughs> it could. 
No, there are tons of uses for a brick. Nobody designing this is going, you know what? Bricks are meant to be solo. Bricks are meant to be by themselves. Nobody thinks that. Why? The very nature of a brick or a stone is that it's built with other bricks for a purpose. What is that purpose? For a building. A building. It shelters you. It protects you from the elements. Nature is our enemy. Does a single brick protect you and shelter you? Remember two years ago when we had the polar vortex? Anybody remember that? Can, I, can a single brick protect you from polar vortex? No, of course it can't. Can it even protect you from rain? No, it can't. I'm being silly here. The question is, can a single brick, estranged from all other brick, fulfill the ultimate purpose and design for which it was created? The answer, no then why do we think solo Christians could ultimately fulfill the design that God has for them? Isn't that just as ridiculous as someone walking out the single brick going, I'm going to protect me from the polar vortex. I'm going to put... No, of course, that's stupid. That's silly. Why do we walk around thinking that solo Christianity is normal? That individual Christianity is God's design? You cannot fulfill the purpose for which God has for you. By yourself. And here's the thing. Just as when you violate your physical design, meaning when you don't exercise, you don't eat healthy, you don't rest, you're a workaholic, it leads to physical breakdown. Listen to me. It will lead to a spiritual breakdown when you exist by yourself. Secondly, I'm going to be quick about this. You're spiritually incomplete by yourself. What do I mean? We began this journey by saying that God himself, by nature, is community. God is community. Existing Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That means you can't grow into the image or the likeness of someone who is inherently an us. Not a me, but an us as an individual. You can't know this God who is community and grow into the image of God who is community without community. Don't you want to be more like Jesus? Don't you want his wisdom? Don't you want his strength? Don't you want his love? Don't you want his holiness? Don't you not, do you not want to become more like Jesus? The Bible says that's impossible to grow into his likeness apart from community. Why? Because God himself inherently is community. I quote C.S. Lewis so often here, people beginning to think he's like one of the 12 disciples. He's not. But one of my favorite quotes that I share with you guys all the time, all the time, all the time in his book, Four Loves, when he talks about his friends, Charles and Ronald, he says, when my friend Charles died, I thought I'd get more of Ronald. Why? So I could spend more time with him. We get to know each other. And he says the opposite happened. When Charles died, it's as if part of Ronald died with him. Because there were things about Charles that only Ronald could bring out. I myself am not big enough to bring out the complex things that are in people by myself. I need others around me to bring out things that I could never do. By the way, as a pastor, I see this happen all the time. Two weeks ago, meeting with a, a couple that's going to get married. And it's a little awkward. But we're sitting and they're having a conversation. This moment happens. The woman will say something. And the guy will be like, really? You feel that? And I sit there and go, is this the first time you heard that? Yes. Happens all the time. Why? There's something about another person that enters the equation. And there's certain other things about that person that's brought out that you could never do. And C.S. Lewis talks about this is the reason why even the angels in heaven in Isaiah 6 are calling out holy, holy, holy to what? To each other. They're facets of God. Listen. If we can't even bring out things in people alone, how do we expect to learn all the difficult different, beautiful aspects of who our God is without being in a community of diverse people. Can I get an amen? This is the reason why I am constantly saying to you, who is at your wedding? Who is standing at your wedding? Who is at your baby shower? Who is at your, when you dedicate? Who is, who, who are the people that are fundamentally in your life, in your relationship? And if those fundamental people look and act just like you, you are seeing a limited vision of God. I am constantly challenging you. Are you in relationships with people who are socioeconomically, educationally, racially, ethically different from you? Why? Because they always will inevitably bring out things about God that you and I could never do on our own, people that are just like us. We are intentionally multi-ethnic. Why? To be cool? No. Because there are parts of God that I will never see without Michael. 
There are parts of God that I would never see without some of you in this community. And I'm thankful for you. Spiritually incomplete by yourself. Third, so I'm going to be quick about this. We need to come in. You need a cause greater than yourself. What do I mean? And the Bible says that you're a living stone being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood is saying something so profound. Can I, everybody look up here, please. Your life wasn't designed to be lived for you. Can I get an amen? Your life wasn't designed to be lived just for you. You need to be part of a cause bigger than just your own happiness. There are things that our culture says we just take it face value. I'm going, that's dumb. One of these is this. When somebody says, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. To which if I know that person, I'll go, then you'll never be happy. Do you know why? Because happiness is an end. The aim of your life being happy, you'll never find happiness. Why? Happiness is a byproduct of something larger than just happiness. If your aim in life is just to be happy, if the ultimate end of your life is just to be happy, that's a dead end, my friends. Isn't it true? Even the most self-absorbed, selfish of us, I... Isn't it true that we feel most alive when we're living for a cause bigger than just me? Come on now. Come on now. Are you with me? Isn't it true that even the most selfish, self-absorbed parts of us, when we actually live for a cause larger than just me and my own happiness, there's a part of our soul that comes alive. And if the end of our life, if the ultimate aim of our life is just me and me only, our lives begin to feel really small. And when our lives get really small, we begin to feel really insignificant. Why? Because we're making no impact to anybody anywhere. Don't fear failure. Fear giving your life and living your life for something where 20 years from now you look back and go, I lived my life for that? By the way, telltale sign that you're one of these folks for whom happiness is your ultimate end. You have a terrible time keeping commitments. You have a terrible time keeping promises. You know why? Because your happiness trumps everything. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that? I'm glad that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross and people were mocking him, he went, you know, this isn't working for me anymore. I think we should see other people. I'm glad Jesus, ultimately, his greatness was that he had a cause bigger than just him. Can I ask you something? I I just want to run out there and choke some of you. Do you? Did I say choke? I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I struggle with English. It's my second language, okay? (laughs) Hold on. Um. Vast majority of Americans have no cause that they're willing to die for. Do you? Vast majority of Americans have no cause that they're willing to go to prison for, to sacrifice everything for. Do you? Do I? Today as you sit here, it's the ultimate aim of your life. Get a good job, have a family, and ultimately, I just want to be happy. Or it's the ultimate aim of your life. Jesus Christ didn't die and rise again so that I could live sin management. Christianity is not about sin management. Christianity says Jesus Christ died and rose so you could overcome those besetting sins and live your life for a cause bigger than you. Do you have something that you're willing to die for? To give your life for? Next, you have a mission that only you can carry out. You have a mission that only you can carry out. To fulfill the mission that God has given us, he gave what's called spiritual gifts. Let me read two passages real quick. Ephesians 4, but each one grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Romans 12, 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Let me just say this straight up. New Testament, there should be 
no spectator Christians. There should be no passive Christians. Biblical Christianity says you don't just come to receive the gospel. You also come to minister the gospel to others. No amen there? Biblical Christianity, there's no such thing as spectator Christianity. Biblical Christianity, there's no such thing as passive Christianity. The Bible says this, and if I believe what it says, the Bible says this, if you are here today, and again, if you're just coming, checking out, you're fine. I'm talking to those of you that have been here weeks and months and have done absolutely nothing, and you're sitting on your hind, warming up the benches. Let me tell you something. The Bible says, this is not my opinion, the Bible says that if you are here and God called you here, it's because you have something to offer here that nobody else can. The Bible says, if you are here, that means, this is my opinion, you have gifts, talents, and things that God has entrusted to you that our church body needs. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Are you hearing me? That means that if you are here and you're not doing anything, you're not fulfilling the very purpose and mission that God has for you. You can't come here just to get gospel ministry. You've got to come here to say, I want to give it. And we need you to give it. That's all I'll say about that. Let's move on. You need an authority greater than your feelings. You need an authority greater than your feelings. Here's another. Here's another thing that people say that bothers me. I'm just suspicious of all authority. I'm just suspicious of all authority. You know who you are. By the way, Dan, Dan, our 60-some-year-old, I got to tell you, I really struggle with the 20-something mentality. Not all 20-somethings are like this, so don't send me emails. I'm talking about a lot of 20-somethings in this generation that are very much like, I'm suspicious of all authority. Government, president, pastor, blah, blah, blah. I'm sus-. To which I want to go, if you're suspicious of all authority, then you realize that indirectly you are putting yourself as the ultimate authority. So are you suspicious of yourself as the authority? Because if you say, I'm suspicious of authority, you're putting yourself as the ultimate authority. And I'm just saying, be consistent. Are you suspicious of yourself as the ultimate authority? Check yourself. No, you might be an amazing authority. I don't, I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying, when you go, I'm suspicious of authority, I'm saying, check yourself as the ultimate authority. See, it's crazy to many parts of the world, that you and I live in a culture where who we date, where we spend our money, how we live, we literally go, nobody else tells me. I decide. Vast majority of the world goes, that's crazy. You decide as a family. You decide as a clan. You decide as a community. What is this? You dis-. But we just go, it's a given. No, nobody. T- I just, I am the ultimate authority. Yeah, I'm offending some people, CC, this morning. I'm ultimate authority. To which the Bible says, Here's the reason why you shouldn't. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18. Remember? But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Remember the two, two premises, and I've been talking about this the last four weeks. One is this. You have to have people in your life who see you so often that they see who you really are. You have to have people give permission so that there are people who catch you just being you. Secondly, secondly, this is important. The other premise of Hebrews 3 is you have to authorize these people to tell you what's wrong with you. Why? Can I just say this? The things that are most wrong with you and most wrong with me, we are blind to. The things that are most messed up about us, we are the least aware of. Do you realize that? It's like we can't hear our voices. You don't know what we sound like. The things that are most messed up about us, we are the least aware of. That's why if we want to grow and mature, you have to deputize some people in your life to go, tell me what's wrong with me. Call me out when I err. And I give you permission because I'm not going to get defensive. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Question is, question is, do you have people like that in your life that you've deputized to say, can you tell me what's wrong with me? Can you correct me when I'm not, can you, when I have a booger in my nose or booger in my eye, can you tell, you got a booger, you got a, can you, yeah, can you do that for me? 
Because if you don't and you go, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody, first of all, nobody will want to be around you. First of all. And secondly, and secondly, you won't grow. You won't grow. Do you have people, it's so quiet in here, do you have people in your life that you've deputized to say, will you ask me hard questions about my sexuality? Will you ask me hard questions about what I do with my money? Will you tell me if I lose my temper? Will you tell me when I say things that are not hurtful? Will you, can you, have you deputized some people or are you, are you that individual solo Christian that says, nobody tells me what to do. I can see what's wrong with me and I'm just going to grow on my own. Have you given permission to some people to say, Speak truth and love to me. Next, you need validation from outside yourself. See, see, it's a hard sermon this morning. Every single person in this room, I might not know you personally, but I know this about you. We want to be loved. Every single one of us in this room, we want to be loved. Here's the other thing we have in common. You ready, church? We believe that if someone is going to love us, we have to hide. Because deep down inside, every single one of us, deep down inside we go, I want to be loved, but I have to hide. Why? Because if you do all there is to know about me, like to the bottom, you will not love me. So I'm either going to choose to hide and be loved, or I'm not going to be loved and be fully me. But the thing that you and I can't shake is this. Every single one of us, every single one of us, we want to be fully loved and fully known. Can I get an amen? Every single one of us. I don't, even the toughest, I don't need anybody. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us desperately says, will you find out all there's to know me? See me to the bottom, even the ugly, oh, the things that if you were to know, you would go, oh, you, my gosh, you're a pastor for Christ. We long for someone to look to the depths of who we are and still say, but I love you. We all want that in here. We all, every single one of us says, I want to be fully known and I want to be fully loved. Here's the problem. The problem is you can't be fully loved if you are not fully known. If you are not fully known, someone could say, I love you. But deep down inside, you're always going to go, you say you love me because you don't know all there is to know me. Because if you knew all there is to know me, you would not love me. And so we walk around not being fully known and not being fully loved. But every single one of us, the thing that we need healing from more than anything else is that there will be people who will look at us and go, I know all there is to know about you and I love you. I love you. You need validation from outside yourself. Someone to say, I know all there is to know about you, but I love you. You don't have to hide. You see, vulnerability is hard. You know it's harder? It's invulnerability. You see, vulnerability is hard. Try doing this. Try going, I don't ever want to be hurt, so I'm just going to close my heart. I'm not going to open myself to anybody. That's harder on your heart, man. You need validation from outside yourself. Somebody to come along and say, I love you. I love you. I know all there is to know about you, but I love you. Where do we get the power to do this? Where do, we, where do we get the power to live into this reality? Where do we get the power that this person out here who's afraid of rejection, who is maybe prideful, who is maybe hurting, struggling, whatever the reasons might be, maybe the per, her church hurt him or her, which is so hard for me as pastor. What's it going to take this person to come over here and say, hey, will you make room for me? I want to be a part of that. You need the chief cornerstone. 
You need the chief cornerstone. What do I mean? First Peter 2, 6, it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Cornerstone was the key to the whole building, you see. The cornerstone is from where all the lines of the building projected off. It was the, 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 the foundation of, of the wall. The cornerstone also had to be the most strongest of all the materials because if the cornerstone cracked, everything else cracked. And it was the most precious because it was the most expensive to produce. What ramifications does this have? CC, come on up. Here's a question that I'm going to leave you with today. Because unless you get this, this this and living into the reality of being built like this is impossible. Is Jesus your precious cornerstone? Hear me. I'm not asking, do you believe in him? I'm asking, is he your cornerstone? Is he your foundation? Is he your all in all? I'm not asking, oh, I believe in him. I have a relationship. I'm asking, is he your cornerstone? Is he your foundation? Is he your identity? Or is he your career? Or is he your grades? Or is it that marriage or the relationship? Is Jesus Christ your cornerstone? Is he the foundation from which your entire life is built? Are you shaped by him? Are you formed by him? No wonder we are so anxious. No wonder we are so insecure. Our cornerstone is our job, our career, our marriage, our relationships, our grades. Do you know that if we build our lives on those things, we are building our lives on sinking sand? You are building your life. I am building my life on sinking sand. No wonder you're sitting here and you're so anxious and insecure and afraid. No wonder we can't pour out our lives in sacrificial service. No wonder we can't go out of our way to entrust ourselves to be built in. Why? He is not our cornerstone. Something else is. Is he precious to you? He's precious to you when you can't Think without him. (laughs) When you can't. Is he ravishing to you? Is he precious to you? Is Jesus, 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 the lover of your soul? The one, as it says in 1 Peter, who was rejected, but chosen by God. Rejected for who? For you, for me. Rejected for who? For you and for me. The one who cries, the one who cries, the one who cries on the cross, as we've been saying for the last two, three weeks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who is cast outside the gates of the city so that strangers, foreigners, and aliens could be welcomed home. And this morning, I need to ask, maybe you're sitting there going, I don't know this Jesus, man. I don't, can I, can, do, do you know the amazing thing about this Jesus is this. <laughs> the amazing thing about this Jesus, he wasn't just rejected by the religious leaders. Do you know who else he was rejected by? By his own, by his disciple. Do you remember Peter? Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock on which, you are the rock on which the church will be built. And we know in John that Jesus is to restore him in 21 because he denies knowing Jesus three times. And yet Jesus says in John 21, in John 21, Peter, will you feed my sheep? Will you feed my sheep? Will you feed my sheep? Jesus restores him, restores him to be the rock, the foundation upon which the church was going to be built. And Peter must have been thinking, me? It's gotta, you've got to be kidding. I denied you three times. And I just want to, if you don't know Jesus this morning, for those of us that do know Jesus, I hope that this gospel comes pouring down on you like refreshing rain because I needed to hear it. Because you know what I was reminded by? You know what I was reminded by this week as I was preparing this? I was reminded that the biggest failures in this world could become the most useful people for the kingdom. I was reminded this morning and this week 
that Jesus says, when you plunge your failures into my grace, you become the most useful person for my kingdom. Why? Because the greatest failures in the world, the greater your failures are, when you actually understand the gospel, the gospel becomes that much more explosive and beautiful to you. And when the gospel becomes that much more explosive and beautiful to you, because of your failures, you become that much more useful, kind, compassionate towards those who don't know Jesus. And so the gospel comes this morning and reminds me and reminds of you that God takes the biggest failures in the world and says, I could use you to build my church. Is that good news, church? So I don't know where you are today, but I just need to say this. If you are somebody, you're sitting here today and going, Peter, Jesus isn't precious to me. Jesus isn't my cornerstone. What do I do? How do I get to know him? I want to share this, and then we're going to take communion. The Bible says that Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived, a perfect life, and earned for us the blessing that such a perfect life deserves. But at the end, he died on the cross, taking the curse for our imperfect lives and taking all the punishment. And the Bible says that when we believe and place our faith in this Jesus, our chief cornerstone, and we surrender our life to him and saying, God, I'm not in control anymore. You are. I surrender my life to you. (laughs) Get this. All the punishment we are due is taken away, having been born by him. And all the blessing and honor that Jesus is due for the perfect life that he lived, God says that he bestows it upon us as a gift. And the moment that we receive Christ into our hearts, the Bible says that God makes us his sons and daughters, and he looks at us like he's he's his son, Jesus. Is that good news today? I could preach on that every week for the rest of my life. Is Jesus precious chief? cornerstone upon which your life is built. On Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking On Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm going to invite you in a moment to take communion. As I've been saying throughout this sermon, death and resurrection of Christ was not just so that we could be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to God as amazing as that is he died for the church he rose again for the church he sacrificed his life for the church so that this this could be possible and as you take bread and as you dip it in the cup today as Paul says in 1 Corinthians recognize recognize the work of Jesus And what I mean by that is, ask yourself the hard question, am I living into the reality of what this is? And I'm very clear, I'm very clear. You don't jump into this carelessly. You don't jump into this nonchalantly. No, some of us, it's going to take some time. Some of us are going to need to be here for a while. Some of us are going to say, I need to get to know you before I commit. That's okay. That's okay. I want you to get to know us. I want to get to know you. But at some point, As the Spirit of God begins to move in your heart, ask yourself that question. Am I built in? Am I fitted? Am I a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit that God is building here at New Community?